morning. I'm John Matthews. Our scripture today is Psalm 12, all eight verses. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be. For the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak falsehood to one another. With flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that speaks great things, who have said with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? Because of the devastation of the afflicted, because of the groaning of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he longs. The word of the Lord are pure, words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. You, Lord, will keep them. You will preserve him from this generation forever. The wicked strut about on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come now to your word, Lord, may it be um, the, the sweet words that we need to hear this morning, words of confidence and assurance, and Lord, also words um, that cut and convict where needed. Lord, may this be true of my heart and of all of our hearts, Lord, as we allow you to examine us, Lord, even as we look at and consider your word. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, to start out with, I didn't plan on doing this, but I was discussing with KJ that I'm actually preaching from the, the New American Standard today because I felt as though um, it had some more accurate um, translation choices than my typical ESV. And I didn't want to say that, but since I'm talking about rejecting pride at one point in the sermon, I felt like I was compelled to. So, yes, if you normally are following along in the ESV, you will not be doing so quite as fluently today. I am in the New American Standard, but you're welcome if you are a New American Standard user. Um, either way, we want to see what God's Word has to say. And I love the Psalms, and one of my favorite things about the Psalms is that they tend to be very raw, is the word I would use. They don't shy away from hard realities. They don't sugarcoat things. Indeed, this is really true of, of all of Scripture. Albeit, sometimes, the, the, where the Lord will make things softened a little bit to tone down the grotesque nature of human sin. But David, especially, who this psalm is written by, um, is perhaps known for being most genuine about what he is feeling when he is writing these praise songs, these words of poetry, and the things that we find in the Psalms. From the highest of highs to the lowest of lows he experienced, um, from Psalms of ascent, extolling the greatness of God, to imprecatory Psalms, calling for the destruction of his enemies. David is well known for pouring out his heart to the Lord in remarkably genuine ways. And Psalm 12, that we'll be looking at today, is no exception to this. David lays before us both the ugliness of human sin and the beauty of God's salvation. 
He contrasts the perverseness of man's words with the purity of God's words. And he calls for the prideful to be cut off while the lowly are lifted up. But Psalm 12 as a whole also presents a very important question to us, and it's this. It's a question that, well, let me say, it's a, a question that needs careful consideration in David's time, in our day-to-day, and really throughout all of human history. This is the question it presents to us. When vileness is exalted among the sons of men, what are God's people to do? When vileness is exalted among the sons of men, what are God's people to do? And fortunately, Psalm 12 not only asks this question, but it also provides us with answers. And if you're taking notes today, there are going to be six headings. I know, it's a lot. But there are going to be six headings that answer this question. And the first one is this. We look to the help of the Lord. We see this in the very first two words in verse 1. David's first inclination should also be ours, which is this. Help, Lord. Help, Lord. In Psalm 121, the, the psalmist writes, Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The creator knows perfectly the ways of all his creation. God knows what will cause it to flourish and what will cause it to fail. He knows what we need and how and when we need it. We don't know exactly when in David's life he wrote this psalm, but here's something we do know. We do know that for most of his life, David did look to the Lord's help. But we also know that the times when he did not look to the Lord, when he took things into his own hands, these were the times when David failed miserably. And isn't the same true of us? Too often, we try to handle things ourselves. We go the opposite of Proverbs 3 and lean on our own understanding. We rely on our own wisdom and our own strength. And when we do this, the hard truth is that we become functional atheists. As if God is not the helper we need. Another psalm, just two over, Psalm 14, verse 1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Yet, are we also not foolish when we know that God is our helper, yet refuse to ask for his help? This would be like trying to find your way through the woods in pitch darkness, while at the same time holding a flashlight containing the brightness of the sun and refusing to turn it on. God is our helper. We all get how foolish taking a flashlight and not using it would be when we need it. Yet at times we fail to see how infinitely more foolish it is to not look to the Lord as our helper. Jesus promised us, John 14, verse 26, to send the helper, the Holy Spirit, who would teach us all things and bring to our remembrance all that he had said. But for us to be helped by the helper, for him to teach us and remind us of all truth, we must walk as the Apostle Paul said. We must choose to walk not according to the flesh, 
but according to the Spirit. The task of living the godly life is in this fallen world is a task that is always too great for us. We cannot do it on our own. It is a falsehood to say, God won't put on you more than you can handle. Every day is more than you and I can handle. But our helper can handle it all and so much more. We have a God to whom we can call out for our help at any and every moment. And we should take full advantage of this as David did. This is the first thing we see in Psalm 12. The second thing is found in the rest of verse 1, which says, For the godly man ceases to be. For the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. Our second heading today is this, is that we lament the absence of the faithful. When David looked around, it appeared to him that there was no one else living in a faithful, godly manner. No one else faithful to the Lord and his covenant. I wonder, have any of you ever felt like David did here? Have a moment of thinking, Lord, am I the only one? Or like Elijah, after he had had this fiery mountaintop experience on Mount Carmel against the prophets of Baal, he is terrified, running away and running for his life from Queen Jezebel. And he cries out to God, Lord, I am the only one left. Have you ever felt this way? The other day, I saw two of our PhD students, um, Justin and Danny, at Heritage House. Um, and as we talked, they mentioned how their field of study, which is psychology, is not exactly the most welcoming of a Christian worldview. So, shocker, right? And Danny said something that I thought was so great. She said how thankful she is to have met Justin. Mind you, this is not just because they're engaged, if you didn't know, but because before that, she looked around at those in her area of study and thought, am I the only one who believes this? This has often been the experience of God's people. Today, even, in many places of the world, Christians live as the only one within miles. The Christian life frequently feels like trying to run up a crowded escalator that's going down. Besides the bodies to navigate through, there are always the sideways looks, and even more so, the condemning comments. What are you doing? You're on the wrong side. What is your problem? And such an uphill battle can cause us to become weary or even to despair when we look around and feel like we're the only ones. But Psalm 12 shows us another way to respond in our moments like this. If the Lord is our help, we should not despair, but it is right for us to lament. Lamenting is saying, it should not be this way. There should not be a lack of those who worship God and obey his commands. The escalator and everyone on it should be moving upward. In God's world, the godly, those made in his very likeness, should be abundant, not absent. 
Yet though this is not right, though it is not the way it should be, Jesus said, is the way it would be. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way narrow that leads to life and there are only a few who find it. Matthew 7, 13 and 14 tell us. In this fallen world, we should not be surprised then to see that the faithful seem so few. But not being surprised by this reality does not mean that we shouldn't still lament over it. Our desire should be what Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And because of the great commission that the resurrected Jesus gave to us, we are to then participate in increasing the number of the faithful on earth until he returns. We do this by making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that he has commanded us. If we look around today and notice an absence of the faithful, we should lament. But we should also ask ourselves, are we being the faithful? Are we obeying our king's commands? Are we seeking to make disciples and increase the number of the faithful? Or only decrying the fact there aren't enough? As we lament, that which should not be, let us also pursue the way things should be on earth as they already are in heaven. And this requires our third heading. It's that we reject the pride of the wicked. Verses two through four and verse eight show us this. Verse two says, they speak falsehood to one another with flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips the tongue that speaks great things, who have said, with our tongue, we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? Verse eight, the wicked strut about on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. There's an obvious correlation that is highlighted at the bookends by David in this psalm. It's that when the faithful vanish, vileness will flourish. When we are not present in this world with the goodness of God, evil will increase. Verse 1 ends with this statement. For the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. Verse 8 then concludes the psalm with the phrase, when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. The faithful disappear, vileness is exalted. David certainly has all sin in mind when he is speaking here of the wicked, referring to the wicked, referring to um, the exalting of vileness. However, I think David shows us not by naming it outright, but rather by painting a poetic picture of a particular sin that he has in mind here. It's pride. Pride causes us not to look upward to God for help but to look inward to self. 
It causes us to believe that our opinions are never wrong. Perhaps you've seen a a t-shirt that says, I'm not arguing, I'm just explaining why I'm right. Seen that before? Maybe you own it, I don't know. Pride puffs us up, causing us to portray ourselves as something that we are not. Namely, that we are God. It causes us to say in our hearts, my will be done, not thy will be done. Pride used to be considered a sin in the majority American culture. But now we're told the entire month of June must be dedicated to openly celebrating pride and pride of a particular variety. In our culture at large, LGBTQ pride has been labeled a virtue. And even in many churches in our nation and around our world, sadly, the faithful have disappeared when it comes to this issue. Yet any honest consideration of Psalm 12, indeed of the entirety of the Bible, must unavoidably lead to a conclusion. And it is that this pride, the pride of LGBTQ and the pride of any other pride is sinful. Every form of pride is sinful. This pride is about love, though, we're told. And love is love. And pride is about the freedom to love who you love, but especially to love yourself, the sayings go. Yet God's word tells us that love does not boast. It is not arrogant. It doesn't act unbecomingly. It does not seek itself. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. 1 Corinthians 13. And if David observed the great, our greater society for the month of June in 2023, would he not still write the words of verse 8? The wicked strut about on every side while vileness is exalted among the sons of men. Phrases like love is love and a woman is a woman because that person identifies as a woman. Anyone who identifies as this can be this. Do these not sound a lot like falsehood pouring forth from flattering lips as described in verses two and three? The words of verse four, with our, our tongue, we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Literally, they are, they are with us. We have our lips. We have our mouth. We have what we say. Who is Lord over us? This verse could be paraphrased as the truth is whatever I say it is. What I say is ultimate. And there is no one, not even God, whose words have authority over me. Pride declares my gender and my sexual preference are for me to define, not for God to define. Does such pride not though mirror that of Babylon that is described in Isaiah 47 verse 10? It says, you felt secure in your wickedness. Your wisdom and your knowledge, they have deluded you. For you have said in your heart, I am. Does that sound familiar 
the Lord revealing himself to Moses at the burning bush. I am, God tells him. I am who I will be. I am who I am. Babylon says, I am, and there is no one besides me. It's not, it's not the same message we see today spoken in pride. Church, for any person, you, me, or anyone else to say, I am whatever I say I am, is to seek and to try to supplant God and to steal and to twist his own words. Beloved, if we would be among the faithful, we must, like David, desire for the Lord to cut off all false speech, all vile actions, and all that pride causes, even if it's our own lips. We must not stick our heads in the sand or shake them in disapproval as vileness is exalted around us, nor should we turn a blind eye to the vileness that may be creeping within our own hearts that puffs itself up in pride. Rather, we must actively and boldly reject all pride, all falsehood, all wickedness around us, but also in our own lives. For the faithful to fail in rejecting the sin of pride is to be neither loyal to our God nor loving to our neighbor. And as we reject pride, here's the fourth heading. We remember the words of the Lord, verses five and six. Because of the devastation of the afflicted, because of the groaning of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. So having considered the pride of the wicked, David once again turns his gaze to the Lord who is his help. Throughout his life, David had cried out to the Lord in his times of need, and time after time, the Lord showed up and delivered him to safety. And David is confident here that God will do it again. Like a brave knight coming to rescue the princess who's locked in the tower and guarded by dragons, the Lord will arise and deliver to safety those who cry out to him in their affliction and their need. In his word, God has told us over and over again that he is a rescuing God. For all who hum will humble themselves and cry out to him, he comes to rescue and save. And unlike the false and arrogant speech of the wicked, God's words are pure and they're completely trustworthy. God's words are what brought creation into being. They are what guide us in the way that is good. God's words are what we proclaim as our salvation in him. Nothing in all creation is more trustworthy more beneficial, more beautiful, or more enduring than the words of God. But like David, we have to actually call them to memory again and again and again because we are what, church? Monumental 
forgetters. We forget so quickly the words, the promises of our Lord, that he is our helper who comes to our aid. He is the one who takes what is too much for us and bears it perfectly. Jesus promised the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. And God's word is yet the only weapon that he has given us to wage war against the spirit of the age. But in order for us to be on attack, we must actually unsheath that sword of the spirit. And we do this by storing God's word up in our hearts so that when the battle rages, we are ready to wield his word properly. When our needs are great, we remember the words of the Lord. When we have abundance, we remember the words of the Lord. When it seems like we're the only one still faithful, we remember the words of the Lord. When it seems like the only the wicked are those who prosper, we remember the words of the Lord. When we are tempted to despair, we remember the words of the Lord. When it's Sunday or any other day, we remember the words of the Lord. When we get up and when we lie down, we remember the words of the Lord. But for us to remember what God has said, we actually have to know what he said. You don't remember what you don't know, do you? We must be like the righteous person described in Psalm 1 whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Not whose obligation, though that is true also. We are obligated to the words of God for they are true. But our delight is in his law. And in his instruction, we meditate day and night. John Calvin described this as putting on gospel spectacles so that all of life we view through the word of God. We must plant the roots of our life like in Psalm 1, the tree planted by streams of living water. We must plant our roots of our life deep in the rich soil of scripture where we will be nourished and so that we may flourish. And when we know God's words and call them to remembrance, we see in verse 7 our fifth heading. We rest in the shelter of the Lord. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will preserve him from this generation forever. Our two oldest children have kind of reached the age where from time to time uh, they will wake up in the middle of the night and cry and be very alarming to us in our deep sleep because they've had a scary dream. So like any good parents, when we hear their little voices crying out in the night, what do we do? We rush in to them and we say, did you know you woke us up? Quit crying, go back to sleep. Of course we don't say that. Of course not. We do not ignore them either though. We do rush to their aid. When we hear their voices crying, we run to them and we meet them with compassion and love and we speak to them words of assurance. It's okay. It was only a dream. Mommy and daddy are here. Go back to sleep. You are 
safe. And almost immediately, it never fails, as if this force field had been activated around their beds and in their rooms, there's peace. And soon they are fast asleep again. Church, if our children can find such security and rest in our words of assurance, how much more can we find security and rest in the words of our Heavenly Father, no matter what the threat against us may be? That's what David does here. And it's what we can do as well. We remember that God's promises are sure because his words are pure. And we find assurance for our anxious hearts and rest for our weary souls. The Lord has promised to come to us in our times of need when we cry out in the midst of the darkness. He has promised to set us in the safety for which we long. He always, always fulfills his promises. Our God is the good shepherd and no one is able to snatch his sheep out of his mighty hand. He is the good shepherd who leads us beside the still waters, who makes us lie down in green and pleasant pastures, who guides us in the paths of righteousness. And even though it may seem like we're the only ones who are yet faithful, even though the lips of the prideful speak what is false, even though the wicked strut about on every side while vileness is exalted among the sons of men, Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we can fear no evil, for he is with us. The good shepherd, who not only was willing to lay down his life for his sheep, but actually did just that. Which brings us to the last heading for today. Number six is that we believe the gospel of Jesus. Today, where we're at in 2023, we have the advantage of looking back and seeing how every word of Psalm 12, penned by David a thousand years earlier than Christ was on earth, was pointing forward to the person and work of the Lord Jesus. When the Son of God stepped into the world that he had made, he was truly alone as the only faithful one. He was in the world and the world was made through him, John 1.10 tells us, but the world did not know him. The world did not know Jesus, but Jesus did know the wickedness of the world and the pride of the world far better than David did when he wrote Psalm 12 and far better than you and I do today. But thankfully, praise God, Jesus said, he did not come to call the righteous all of us sinners. This was good news then and it is still good news for us today. It is good news for us because but for the grace of God in Christ, we are those with the flattering lips. We are those with the double heart. We are both those who devastate and afflict others with our own sin and those who are devastated and afflicted by the sin of ourselves and others. We are the ones who have lifted ourselves up as though we are God. And therefore, we, not just our lips, we should be cut off. Yet, 
when we call on the Lord's help, realizing that we never were the godly or faithful ones to begin with and that only God can save us, Jesus takes our place. To be our cure, he became our curse. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people? to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Isaiah 53, seven to nine. The very one who only speaks words that are pure, like silver refined seven times, gave no response to his accusers whose lips spoke falsehood against him. Jesus was not kept. He was not preserved from his generation to whom he came, but was given up to them. And to set us in eternal safety, he was cut off, cut off from the land of the living, though we are the ones to whom the stroke was due. But through faith in Christ, we go from being the wicked, strutting about in our pride and exalting vileness, to being the godly and faithful, the one set in the eternal safety for which our souls long, the ones who are being kept in the shelter of the Most High and preserved in the shadow of the Almighty. Christ, who knew no sin, became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us. All of our unrighteousness placed on him. All of his righteousness placed on us. So, when vileness is exalted among the sons of men, What are God's people to do? I think David would emphatically approve of Paul's words in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. 
We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let the people of God say amen. Father, we need your help in all things. Lord, you have created us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you as St. Augustine reminds us. Lord, today, if there are those who are restless in their hearts, Lord, draw them, I pray, to the rest and the peace that is found in your word, is found in your salvation, is found in the eternal life and security that you alone can provide. Lord, speak and let us, your children, be listening. We pray in Jesus' name.